Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. Today, I am joined by Manish Kataria, and we are going to be discussing how economic conditions might affect house prices. It's the 15th of May. The way things are moving at the moment, it's important for us to tell you when this was recorded, as the situation seems incredibly volatile and fast-moving. Um, so a bit about Manish. Manish started to focus on real estate investment full-time after he left investment management, where he made consistent returns even in market downturns for large investment houses and blue chip clients. He realized that high levels of due diligence present in the financial world were maybe lacking slightly in certain real estate circles. And so he put with his expertise together as being a, um, a chartered financial advisor as well, allowed him to find deals that perform and led him to form his own investor circle of which he is the lead investor today. And having perfected the due diligence process, he uses to assess deals for co-investors and his own investments. He started Invest Like a Pro to share these opportunities with potential investors. So thank you, Manish. I hope I've got all that correct. Yeah, that was a good introduction. Thank you, Rod. I, I might steal that one one day. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to be on the legendary uh, Rodcast as well. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. Well, we're, hopefully we're doing something right. So I guess let's, let's kick things off, Manish. Obviously, we're here to talk about how some of these economic conditions are affecting or can affect house prices going forward. So to start that, we kind of obviously need to understand what the current state of affairs is for the property market. So what do you look at in order to judge the current state of the property market? I suppose for one, for residential and two, for commercial. Yeah, I mean, I guess this time around the cycle's a little bit different because what normally happens is that you have uh, some sort of um, asset bubble or some sort of credit conditions or the economy being overheated. And, uh, you know, of course, this time around, it's an unknown unknown that's hit the markets, right? So this is coronavirus, which nobody expected. So it's, it's slightly different. But in general, you know, the way I look at um, residential is it's a function of, of three things, I guess, uh, supply and demand. And, uh, you know, that in itself is a function of, you know, population growth, household formation, that sort of thing. So I'd say that is the key long-term driver. Then there's also credit availability, which has been hugely important in, in previous cycles. And, and thirdly, interest rates. So for, for resi, those are the three areas for commercial. It's, it's a little bit different. But th those are the things I'm looking at right now. And, and the way I look at things going forward, all of those three factors, all three of those factors are pretty supportive for residential going forward. In the, in the long term, I'm guessing. Yeah, correct. Yeah. So you mentioned there different cycles. So do you believe that the property market is cyclical in order to forecast where prices may be heading then? I think um, we have to differentiate between residential and commercial. And, yeah. and residential, we have you know, long-term drivers. Some of those things I mentioned earlier, demographics and population, and they have a far more important impact on the residential market over the long term. In the short term, yes, okay, we're going to get uh, what's happening right now. It's going to have an impact on the residential market. So we're probably going to see a dip 
in in the residential market you know up to 10% maybe uh, maybe more maybe less depending on how things happen work out but for commercial it's very cyclical uh, you know commercial it's more like the stock market so it's cyclical it's sensitive to economic cycles it's sensitive to gdp employment confidence and so it makes it a lot more volatile than residential absolutely well, we'll go on to kind of how you, you look at that because I know you mentioned the 10% drop and things like that. And I, I guess we'll, we'll delve deeper into that as, as the podcast goes on. But so I guess one other question then I've, I've got is in terms of what's happened with the whole COVID-19 scenario and how fiscal and monetary policy has, has sort of changed in the short term to try and help out certain well, governments have put things in place to and central banks to try and help the situation how do you think people's housing costs as a proportion of their income will change if at all and what do you think is going to happen to people's disposable incomes in the in the next couple of years in regards to these impacts and what the government and central banks have done so the, what, what they've done is in response to kind of almost preempting the unemployment that's going to shoot up, is, is likely to shoot up as a result of uh, you know, the virus. The first thing is unemployment is going to go up. So that means overall incomes are going to reduce. So yeah. you know, there, there are fewer people working and those that are working are not going to see wage increases. Um, in fact, wage increases were kind of accelerating over the last few yeah. years. They've gone up to, I think, 4% in the UK, which was, you know, a, kind of a recent record in terms of um, nominal wage growth. Yeah, well, even real wage growth, it was the first time real wage growth had, had really increased for at least a couple of quarters yeah, in sort yeah. of 2007, really. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So that was, uh, you know, that's that's great for um, employment and, and overall sort of affordability. So yeah, that's that's been going up. But, you know, rent growth has been pretty stagnant. So if I look at sort of, economy-wide numbers, we're looking at 1%, 2%. And, and actually, historically, rental growth has been pretty in, a, in a pretty narrow range. So anywhere between 0 to 3%. Um, I think in 09, it dipped a little bit. But generally, it's been very, very stable, whereas wage growth is a little bit more volatile, but still within a rel- relatively tight range. So in terms of the Impact short term, we're going to see um, people's affordability or, or or incomes come down overall. Over the sort of medium term, I still think that um, the housing market, we're going to have supply and demand issues in the housing market. So you're going to get, you know, you've got fewer houses on the market. Um, you know, construction is going to take a hit as a result of this. Brexit will have have an impact on. I'm talking about overall supply yeah, of yeah. housing across the economy. And credit uh, is also going to take a little bit of an, uh, a knock. So that means that the overall number of new houses hitting the market, you know, this year, next year, yeah. the year after, it's going to be pr- probably going to be lower than expectations. So if you've got a lower stock of overall property, and, and at the same time, if you've got demand, which is going to be roughly um, sort of in line with expectations. So you've got population growth. You know, people are talking about uh, the divorce rate going up. People are talking about people needing to have their own houses now. So, you know, whereas people were living with their parents, their elderly parents, they might look to kind of have their own place now. People want garden space. People want more home office space. So that could you can easily make an argument to say over the medium term the demand for housing is going to go up which should mean all else being equal that rents go up 
And uh, in terms of incomes, yes, they'll probably go down a little bit, but I think the, uh, the, the impact will be more towards the, the supply side and the demand shock. So I've, I've got a question on supply and demand. I often struggle with the whole supply and demand kind of debate in the UK because there's always a supply and demand issue. There's always not enough supply for the demand. But my issue is more centered around the availability of credit because if you've just got one house and you've got 10 people that want to live in it uh, or 10 people that want to buy it, but none of them can actually afford to the price that the person's wanting to sell it for, then really supply and demand doesn't feature. What has to happen is either the price drops down to what the 10 or one of the 10 can afford, or their incomes need to increase. Do you see what I mean? So what my argument is really, I guess, is that are we saying that there's going to be, with the unemployment levels and the wages dropping, Obviously, that's not going to be everyone, but there's going to be a proportion of society whose incomes drop, and it's those ones that miss out heavily, but, and it brings down the average for income for everyone. But others will still remain the same, but it's just you're you kind of saying, well, those ones are going to be the fortunate ones that are going to be fighting it out, and because there's still not enough supply for, for their demand, that that will keep things, things afloat. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a good point. And, um, y- you know, you have kind of longer term factors at play. And we're talking about availability of credit. We're talking about, you know, s- you know we have to think about housing as, a, as an essential need. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, which it is, right. And, and generally people will, you know, want to, they should need housing, whether they're renting or buying above everything else, right? Because the roof over your head is pretty much, pretty much what you need. So what happens is that, you know, the, the, the level of, let's say rent to incomes or income to rent, you know, that, that fluctuates. So even during a time when incomes aren't necessarily going up that much, which was actually the case over the last 10 years, you know, rental growth outpaced income growth. And so what happened is that that ratio continued to rise. So, you know, the amount of people's incomes that were spent on rent were kind of going up over the last 10 years because, um, because they just wanted to, uh, they needed housing, the incomes were not catching up with rent and, and that ratio kept going up. So, you know, you can have that. I mean, that's not sustainable. You can't have a situation where you're paying hundred percent of your incomes, but there is leeway, you know, in, in terms of that ratio going up. Well, I think there's a, there's a big kind of almost elephant in the room there where we're talking about people's incomes, and I totally agree that this is by far and away the best metric to measure affordability is their monthly income in relation to housing costs, Mm. whether that's rent or even mortgages. But if we're talking about rents, I think on average it was something like 33% for the last 50 years throughout the UK, but there's obviously massive disparity in locations Mm. and values. So again, where you're in London, it's going to be between 50 and 60%. And the reason being is because if you think about what people's disposable incomes are spent on, the other staples of life, such as food, transport, internet now, they remain the same wherever you are mm. in the country. So in higher value areas, you can afford to have more of your wage because your, your wage is higher. You can afford to have more of that spent on housing. Mm. Yeah. And I, I think there, there, is, there are sort of examples where, like you said, obviously can't go to 100%, but even... 
going above 60% in London is, is, a, is a warning signal that actually this, is, this, is, this has got too much and things may, may have to change. And yeah. I know with, with mortgage costs, and I know you, you agree with me because I've, I've, I've seen some of your talks on this, in that affordability for house prices um, for homeowners will be based on their upfront costs as a proportion of their salaries, but also their ongoing monthly mortgage costs as a proportion of their their income. Hmm. And things that affect that, obviously, are interest rates being next to nothing now, which supports that, but also mortgage terms. So whereas, I don't know, 20 years ago, a typical mortgage term for a first-time buyer might have been 25 years, they're now 40 years, Yeah, which hmm. spreads out these payments. And these things are kind of helping to, not, I don't want to use the word inflate, but helping keep prices buoyant. Oh, would you agree with that? Or? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. So, you know, I'll bring in sort of international comparison. So, yeah. you know, there, is, there are places, um, Hong Kong, yeah. New York, and, you know, various other places, Singapore, where, you know, house prices to incomes or um, rent as a proportion of incomes, all of those measures are a lot higher than in London. So, you know, it is, um, you know, in other countries, it has been higher and it can be higher. Um, I'm not saying it's sustainable, but there's also, it's not just incomes as well, right? So you've, it's also, you look at your savings. So can people... Just, can I just cut in yeah, on yeah. that? Because you've mentioned places like Hong Kong, Singapore and, and New York and, and mortgages for one uh, and rents uh, being higher. And I totally agree. But my kind of sort of reason for that being able to be sustained and I don't think it's sustainable for a hugely long term but I think for a few years it is is because those wages in those areas are that much higher especially when you talk about Singapore and New York they're higher than than London and like we talked about the cost for those other staples such as food and transport and things like that are are um, are the same as maybe the rest of New York compared to I don't know somewhere in south georgia they might not be hugely different yeah but these but these are these are still ratios right so we're still talking about ratios and income to rent ratios yeah exactly yeah but 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 my point is you can the higher the value of someone's income means that they can allow a higher percentage to be spent on rent yeah i mean there's that and also, we have to look at, uh, you know, how much cash they've got sitting around as well. So, you know, people in, in these kind of areas which have got, you know, big financial districts, they might get paid big bonuses, right? So, in addition to their salaries. So, the salary is one thing, but also how much cash they've got sitting around because they can afford to top up their incomes with cash that's sitting around and that contributes to their housing costs as well. So, they, they are, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. They're very different dynamics where, you know, where people have got high savings or high bonuses uh, in say London compared to Nottingham or somewhere. And, and the other thing is, and, and people will maybe have a go at me for saying this, but in a lot of those areas which you've mentioned, which are financial hubs, people are a lot more financially savvy. Mm-hmm. And so we'll maybe have, like you said, not just savings, but other investments yeah. like that, that they can call on and have a buffer. Whereas, yes. and this is a real broad bus statement, but 
in in general that could that could possibly be a, another argument and i don't it, want to it, i don't want to annoy people who live yeah. outside of those areas <laughs> It could be, but yeah, I mean, one other thing which is really interesting is, you know, so I, I worked in the city and I still am, you yeah. know, in the city on a part-time basis because I still work as a director of a fund. And I, you know, I come across um, professional, in inverted commas, well, they are professional investors and, you know, very smart, um, you know, they're, they're very smart on the financial metrics and all the rest of it. But it's really astonishing how many of these people you come across who, who don't own their own house or are not interested in property. And it always, um, you know, I was kind of one of those when I was in the city, I was caught up in that. And the reason for that is because you look at equities, you look at fixed income and you look at all these ratios and you think, oh, you think everything's expensive because you're comparing it against financial investments. So when you're looking at equities, you look at price to earnings ratios, you look at dividend yields, et cetera, et cetera. And then when you look at property, you think, wow, I'm not going to buy an asset which is yielding 3%. So nobody owns their own property. It's, it's amazing. And even now, and people have just sat on the sidelines, even through the, you know, the whole of the last 20-year period, which has, been a, which has been a bull market for UK property, let's face it. Yeah. So, so all of these people are sitting on cash or other liquid investments, and they're topping up their rents by having not invested their equity in, in the housing market. So they've all missed out because of this sort of analysis paralysis. But I, I think I, th I totally agree with you because I've got friends in, in the same boat that they're very, very smart, but it's the old kind of adage of um, do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. Mm. It's, it's far easier to explain to someone rather than do it yourself. But also uh, you kind of touched on this with property versus stocks or versus other financial assets, you, with property, you've got an incredibly illiquid asset there. But especially with residential, it also provides that utility. And so what, you're, what I always say is you're, what you're giving up in liquidity, you're saving in volatility, if that makes sense. So like you're, uh, whereas the stock market can be far more volatile, normally you find residential house market is far less volatile but far less liquid so absolutely it's a bit like a cruise liner yeah trying to turn it takes a while doesn't it and, uh, it does yeah so that you know there's two reasons for that one is one is the liquidity which you mentioned because you know it takes you know three six months to transact on a house yeah. and so you can't you don't have those knee-jerk reactions as you do in equities and the second thing is, you know, like you, like you said, it's, it's spot on. You know, people need housing. Um, it serves a need for shelter. There is a utility need. So it's not just financial investments. Um, so to an extent, it's not as cyclical as, as commercial or certainly the stock market because of that reason. People still need housing to have a roof over their heads. Exactly. And you also touched on something else that I just want to kind of go off at a slightly different tangent when you were talking about a lot of these sort of smart guys in the city uh, who are financially savvy and how they look and monitor different metrics of financial assets. So in the past, you look at what well, I would look at an asset and think, right, what is the uh, future free cash flow of, that this is going to give me? And you would put a discount in there for the, for the cash flow as well. So you'd have a discounted model normally. Now, my question is, is that model of a discounted future cash flow, is that still accurate now where the cost of capital is just so low, but also where currencies and the cost of capital are just so easily manipulated 
and a perfect example is right now where the governments are, are doing all these things and central banks are, are doing all these things. So that kind of model or metric seems to be only useful if you're assuming that that currency is sound. Um, so do you think that that is, I mean, is what I'm trying to get to is, do you think that has, is now a weakened metric? And do yeah. you think it's important to look at other metrics alongside that to kind of... It's, I think it's always going to be a valid metric. You know, the purest form of valuing any asset that produces cash flow is, um, as you said, you look at its long-term cash flows, not just this year, next year, and into perpetuity. And you look to see how those cash flows are going to grow and you discount them back. You add them all up, but you discount all the future years back to the present day. And that gives you today's valuation. And which is kind of a, one of the reasons why people have been astonished about why the markets have rallied. And I'm sure we'll come on to that. Um, but, you know, markets have rallied 20, 25%. And people think, oh, how can, how can markets have rallied? Because we've got lockdowns. We've got an imminent recession. We've got a death toll accelerating. And you see, people see all this sort of media frenzy with uh, what's going on. And at the same time, the markets are kind of just shrugging it all off and, and they've just rallied 20, 25% since mid-March. And, and what people have to understand is it's not just about today. The stock markets look forward. So it's not just what's happening this year. They've already started looking into next year, 2022, 2023, and they're forecasting a resumption of growth. Maybe not a full recovery, but a resumption. And they, they always look forward. I mean, for the markets, coronavirus is yesterday's news already. So, so just to put that into context, but the model, it, it's always, it has to be valid. You know, mathematically, it has to be valid because what, you know, you, you have a reduced interest rate, yes, but the how you discount those cash flows isn't just the interest rates we see, it's also the risk premium. So it's the risk premium over other assets. And that risk premium goes up and down depending on where investors see stress going forward. So if all of a sudden investors see that these low interest rates are going to produce stress at some point in the future, although interest rates will be very low, people's perception of the um, the risk premium will go up. So that will negate the, the lower interest rates. So that's kind of a technical way of saying it. But, you know, the answer to your question is, you know, very much so. It's, it's, it's always valid and always will be. Because I guess, I guess my point is, with interest rates being so low, but also the level of kind of stimulus that's been putting in, that is going to have that effect of a weakening that currency compared to others do you think that can affect it at all the way in which you don't know what the government's going to do next week whether they're going to chuck another sort yeah. of stimulus package across do you think that can affect it at all? Or, do you, um, or do you think it's on such a scale that actually it's proportional to everything else yeah i mean currency is an interesting one because you know if we were the only ones in the uk we were doing this the qe and all the rest of it then the the pound would certainly weaken but it's it's happening all over the world so the us is doing it uh, europe is doing it so there's qe happening everywhere which is kind of um neutralizing the exchange rate impact um so as far as exchange rates are concerned, that's not such an issue. Um, you know, we can talk about inflation and all the rest of it, which people may have concerns about. And we can also talk about debt because uh, one of the things, I mean, this is a very special, extraordinary situation. And, and the way I look at it is that, okay, the government really needs to chuck money at this, um, you know, in 
during historical recessions and depressions, governments have been very, very slow, right, and behind the curve. This time round, they've been well ahead of the curve. You know, we, you know, the government came out, the Bank of England came out and announced QE very, very early on um, during this process. And you know, if you look back to 08, they were relatively behind the curve. In 1929, they were well behind the curve. So I think you know that actually gives us hope. The economy and the furlough scheme and all the rest of it mm-hmm. is, um, you know, they have been ahead of the curve. And you look at the starting point. So the budget deficit in the UK was, um, I think it was 2% going into this last year. And we'd made a lot of progress reducing that budget deficit since the last recession. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that's actually been a great um, starting point because, you know, our, our budget deficit is now 2%. It's likely to go up to 10, 12% as a result of what's happening. Now, if we didn't go through this austerity and all the, all the rest of um, this process of reducing the budget deficit, imagine what would have happened if we would, had started off with a budget deficit of 8 or 10%. We would now be looking at a potential budget deficit of 20, 22, 25%. So, you know, the austerity has actually worked out in our favor right now in terms of the overall structural health of the economy. Yeah, I, I saw a graph that you put up, which was really interesting about individual debt, government debt, and the deficit, which which mm-hmm. showed this. And I'll, I'll put a link to it in the in the show notes. But it was really really useful. Um, now you mentioned something else there that I kind of wanted to touch on, which was a bit of a comparison between other recessions. So you mentioned, um, I think, the Great Depression in two thousand and eight, and some. Something that I know we've talked about in the past was Japan. And obviously, differences now compared to Japan, because people will say, well, Japan did quantitative easing and they went into a deflationary environment for an extent, like I think it was about the lost decade, wasn't it? It was over 10 years. Yeah, yeah, coming up to 20 years now, I think. Yeah. But but I think obviously there's huge differences, and you alluded to the one which I think is the main one, really, which is the speed at which the governments and banks acted in order uh, to get that money out to people. So, or, or not just out to people, but out the door. Because yeah. that's a kind of separate question is, and we'll go on to this, there's so many different aspects of this mm-hmm. that I want to talk about. But I suppose if we start on that, a huge difference is how quickly that, that stimulus is, is happening right now compared to Japan, compared to the Depression, compared to 2008. And then I guess the other one is, is to talk about inflation and what our thoughts are so when people talk about inflation it's it's are we talking about inflation of financial assets are we talking about cpi inflation because they're very very different things mm, and, um, yeah. and then deflation and then stagflation and what have you and, and things like that so yeah you, have you got any kind of comments on, on yeah. how this compares to other recessions and then- yeah yeah no that's um it's a really valid point because people have kind of wondered you know how how you compare against previous recessions and i i look back to 2008 because that's our, our sort of nearest yeah comparison and um, you look back at that I mean the cause of this recession compared to last is obviously very very different and if I look back to 2006 2007 going into that recession 
the health of our economy, you know, we were, we were totally different. So you look at various things like the state of the banks, you look at the state of leverage going into that economy, you look at the housing markets, you look at the stock market bubble, everything was very, very different. So our starting point right now, we start with a much healthier position. So let's take the banks, for example. You, you know, you remember Northern Rock were, you know, lending 120% or whatever of, of, the, of housing values. We haven't had any of that now. Uh, you know, in fact, the banks have been much more sensible in terms of their lending this Has time Mark, around. Mark Carney set up the um, bank reserves that they, they have to have and the, the capital per asset yeah. ratio, wasn't it? That, that well, that's, yeah, absolutely. And that's another chart which I've, which I've put out, actually. And, and there's, a, there's a, actually an article I've just put out in Property Investor News uh, this month, which if people can uh, have a look at, that compares what's happening now versus 2007, 2008. And one of the things I look at is the state of the bank. So, you know, back then, bank reserves and, and bank equity. So it's called the, and the capital adequacy ratio mm-hmm. for banks. And that basically measures, you know, how much capital they have to protect against um, things going wrong. It's almost like, um, you know, how much equity you have in your property. Yeah. It's the cushion. So back then, you know, banks were very lowly capitalized and that you can argue caused that big uh, recession at the time. And this time around, you know, banks have been made to clean up their acts since 08 and got a whole load of new regulations. So in 2019, 2020, banks are, you know, they have double the amount of equity and amount of capital that they had before. So the ability and the willingness for them to lend is so much better. And that's, very, very important for property because obviously property is a levered asset class. So it makes such a big difference compared to 08. Yeah, it's, 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 it's absolutely huge. And, um, and especially when you talk to people who went through a tough time in 2008, the majority of it was, number one, what the banks were demanding from them in terms of their covenants and loan-to-values and pulling cash in because they needed money. I remember mm. speaking to one person who who said the banks came to him and said, we've run out of money, we need to, we need to call in your loans. Yeah. He was like, well, you're the bloody bank, you're going to have it. And it was an absolute disaster. And, and that's something that even before COVID came out, we were seeing certain developers were maybe uh, not doing the best schemes and, um, and had got into scenarios where banks were ready to, to take charge of that asset. And what we were finding was unlike in... 2008 where they would maybe look to sell it off and even take a haircut from their debt because they were in quite strong positions and quite well capitalized they could actually afford to go do you know what we're going to sit and wait we'll hold this asset we'll rent it out because we don't want to take a haircut and we'll get a small yield from it and then we'll we'll look to to offload that later day we're just which is something remarkable that you absolutely yeah because you know the difference is the difference is stark so at that time banks were fighting for their lives right there was a huge liquidity crisis they they needed to get that liquidity from anywhere they could and the traditional sort of sources of liquidity they're all dried up and uh, so that's why they had to pull in their loans elsewhere and this time around there is no liquidity crisis yet and hopefully that won't be the case and uh, you know banks are not uh, collapsing all around us 
Um, so, so they don't really need, they're not that desperate to pull in their loans from everywhere else, right? And there's a load of capital sitting around elsewhere. You know, I, I know in terms of, you know, the private investors I work with, everyone's got a lot of cash and they all want to deploy. Even now, they're, they're hungry to deploy in good quality projects. So there's a load of cash sitting around. Banks are in a healthier position and property from here, you know, it's in a really healthy position. Yeah. And what about, um, so that's kind of 2008, lots of people are talking about kind of the Great Depression and, and uh, they're very concerned about this turning into something like that that's a long, long recovery. What are your kind of thoughts on that? Yeah, again, you know, you, you look back at any sort of recession, depression, any sort of uh, macro issues that have hit the economy, there's one common theme, uh, two common themes, and one is an asset bubble of some sort, okay? Um, And you have an asset bubble which kind of just goes nuts in the run-up to the potential bursting of that bubble. And the second thing is credit growth. So, you know, both of those things we haven't seen this time around, right? So, we haven't seen a huge asset bubble anywhere, whether it's property, equities were looking a bit elevated, but not really bubble conditions. Property, we've just we've just been through political uncertainty, Brexit and all that. So if anything, property were people were a little bit um, kind of concerned about the state of the property market. So in all of these things, you look at Japan, you look at 2008, you look at the Great Depression in you know, 1929, the precursor to all of that was either an asset bubble or a credit bubble. Mm-hmm. And, and because we don't have that now, because what's led to this problem now is, is a virus, which is an, an external unknown unknown, as long as, as long as we don't get a second wave and reinfection and all of those kind of things, then you know, this will go and, and we should have a resumption to some form of normality next year. You mentioned a couple of things there that I want to pick up on talked about obviously there being some sort of asset bubble or credit bubble what what are your thoughts on levels of, of debt at the moment because people are talking about that as maybe being a, a big issue so um individual personal debt things like that yeah so there's yeah so there's three levels of debt there's government debt there's corporate debt and and consumer debt yeah. government debt I, I kind of mentioned earlier was on was in a healthy state and it's yeah. going to get worse from here but yeah. that's that's kind of but there's within... for it to, to allow to yeah. able to get worse compared to the highs that we've had as Correct. a percentage of GDP. As a percentage of GDP, we're not at the sta- at this stage at the moment. We're not going to go back to sort of historical highs, yeah. and and that's fine. And in fact, if if you expect growth to pick up again next year and the year after, then you know that naturally reduces the debt level uh, debt levels anyway. Consumer debt again has been um, you know decelerating over the last five or six years. We've had political uncertainty with Brexit and all the rest of it, and people just haven't been confident to go out there and spend lots of money, especially on. You know, cars and consumer items, and in you know, a retail spending has been overall been coming off, and so you know again we're not seeing that huge elevated levels of debt. Corporate debt is uh, you know in some parts yes there's been a slight increase in corporate debt globally. Again, I, we shouldn't be overly concerned because you know we have to think about the servicing of this debt as well. Okay, so when you've got an environment of very low interest rates. It kind of makes sense for corporates to go out and acquire more debt. You know, a time like this, you know, fill your boots um, in a sustainable way because, you know, you can get very, very cheap debt over the long term, which can, uh, you know, sort of 
you can use um, in terms of bolstering your balance sheet. So I don't think any of these levels of debt are something we shouldn't be wor- we should be worried about. And and the most important thing is we haven't seen a huge sort of runaway growth in in any of this debt. Okay, it's been fairly measured. It's been uh, it's all been fine, and th- we don't have associated asset bubbles as well. So 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 far, you know that. The traditional indicators of of bubble or a bursting of a bubble or a sort of oncoming uh, sort of recession or depression haven't really been there. They've been absent this time around. You you, you mentioned um, obviously interest rates. So interest rates being low are, are, are good for corporate debt, but also it's good for government debt as well because mm. it's uh, huge hugely beneficial for them. Massive. But, what what are your feelings then on interest rates going up over the short, uh, well, say the next two or five years? I just um, I just don't see it. Uh, I don't see it. In fact, you know, it was a couple of years ago I decided to, um, you know, I had a few refinancings and I just went to trackers. You know, luckily for me, they, um, you know, so they're on tracker rates. They've come down. Um, I don't have any fixed rates because I didn't expect interest rates to go up anytime soon and certainly not to levels we've seen before. Again, we look at Japan as a bit of a case study. You know, Japan was its bubble burst in 1990 and, you know, it was one of the pioneers of QE and all the rest of it. And it's seen seen, uh, deflation rather than inflation. But in terms of interest rates, it's been, its interest rates have been very, very low. They've been close to zero for, you know, 20 years or so. So, you know, I just... The only reason interest rates would go up, the two reasons, one is that economic growth starts accelerating to unsustainable levels and we see inflation. Uh, one of those two conditions has to be there and I don't see either of those, those two conditions being there in a sustainable way over the long term for central banks to come out and start increasing interest rates. Now let, let's just quickly pick up on that just before we talk about inflation because I want, definitely want to discuss that what about you mentioned like equity bubbles we equities have gone slightly higher over over the the past few years Mm. i think certainly for me when i look at equity prices there is a big big difference between looking at say the s&p 500 and the FTSE 100 Mm. because you've got the s&p that's kind of led quite heavily by tech industries and then you've Mm. got the FTSE, which is sort of oil, maybe even a bit of insurance and banking, which are all yeah, not doing yeah. particularly great. So do you think there's, what, what are your kind of feelings on, on looking at those and, and how they're doing and how they're performing? And sorry, and how that might affect property? Just taking your first question, the FTSE has been a complete dog yeah. over the last three or four or five years. It's been a big underperformer. A lot of that's been due to Brexit. So international investors have said, look, just uh, let's ignore the FTSE. Let's ignore the UK whilst the UK sorts out its political situation. But the, yeah, you're right. The US has been the big outperformer. And you know, actually, if you look at where most of the wealth around the world is, most of it is concentrated in the US or US dollar based. And so if all of that wealth is US related, 
you know, and if these people are happy with their home market, you know, tech is doing well. Tech is like the only game in town sometimes it yeah. feels. You know, why should they take risks in emerging markets or in Europe? And they look at what's happening in Europe and the Eurozone situation. They look at Brexit. They look at emerging markets, China. You know, there's no point in even taking those risks when everything at home is is looking better, right? So they that's what they've been doing. They've been taking money out of uh, sort of emerging markets in Europe and bringing it back home, which has led to the US market doing better uh, than everything else. So that's one thing. And your other question was linkage to... Stock markets to property. Yeah. There's, there's not a sort of causal link. Okay. So we don't... There's certainly some correlation. There is correlation, yeah. So there's causality is is kind of debatable, um, but the correlation is very much uh, there, and and that's because it's the same factors that affect, uh, you know, the same underlying factors that affect the stock market affect the property market. So let's just take, you know, coronavirus. This, you know, coronavirus had a huge impact on the stock markets. We had a huge crash coming up to mid March. And those same factors will obviously hit the property market, right? So it's the lack of demand, the lower confidence, the lockdowns, and all the rest of it. They affect the different markets in the same way. The extent is different, uh, like we talked about earlier. In, you know, in 08, equity markets fell 40, 50% uh, from peak to trough, whereas residential markets fell by 19%. And, um, and actually, commercial property fell 44% from peak to trough. So, you know, all asset markets, yeah. you know, react in different ways, but they all react in the same direction. Also, also kind of just one point picking up on that is, um, obviously, you mentioned that the FTSE has been an absolute dog for the last few years. Well, property prices have too, if you look at the UK as a whole, because London has pulled the rest of the UK averages down a fair bit, really. Mm. So you can still see the correlation, but it's very, very difficult to look at kind of residential property prices as UK as a whole, because we know we've got massive, massive differences in terms of location and um, and even to a point, the type of tenants you've got, whether you've got yeah. talked about Singapore, New York, having high high earners uh, being, being those tenant types, and whereas, I don't know, you might have somewhere else that's uh, Aberdeen reliant on the oil industry. For example. Yeah. So it's very, very difficult to kind of put it as a whole. But if you do have to package it all up as values, you can see some, some quite interesting correlation there between, between them, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, we've also had this sort of tax changes in the UK as well, which has been kind of somewhat independent of the stock market. But, you know, Brexit has been the common factor. So Brexit has impacted the UK market as well as um, UK property. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about inflation then. And I guess we will, we'll start by maybe just talking about the different types, because I know when people talk about it, Often it's not clear as to whether they're talking about cost uh, price inflation, so the average cost of a basket of shopping or goods and services, or whether they're talking about maybe financial asset inflation. Mm. So I know since 2008 to now, we've had some huge financial asset inflation, whereas actually not much else in terms of kind of real wage growth we mentioned before hasn't really done much apart from the last couple of years so what are your what are your kind of thoughts on inflation and how those different types of inflations might or, or what kind of inflationary environment mm. 
might, yeah. might come out of this really? Yeah, a really good question. And, you know, there's been a lot of debate around inflation as well. I would say, okay, so f- for regular inflation, the type of inflation we all know and we hear about, um, you know, in terms of the CPI and, and RPI and that sort of thing. And by the way, I should just point out right now, People should not trust government numbers on inflation because we see you have CPI running at sort of one two percent officially, but in reality it's running at five six percent and has been for years and years and years. And there are lots of reasons around that which I won't go into, but it's the composition of the basket and actually it well, it is in the government's changes as well. It's what? It's how that, but like you just mentioned, it's how that basket changes. It's how it changes. Yeah, it is how it changes. And it's, it's essentially a, a manipulation by the government. And that's a bit of a conspiracy theory, but it's, it's true because it's what you said earlier, Rod, about, you know, government has a lot of debt on their balance sheets, right? And the biggest debtor in the country is the government. And it's in the government's interest to keep interest rates low. And the way to keep interest rates low is to advertise low inflation, right? If all of a sudden they actually advertised the real rate of inflation, there'd be pressure on interest rates to go up. So it's in their interest to make us all believe that inflation is lower than expected. So that's the first thing to say. But irrespective of that, you know, for, for inflation to accelerate, whatever the level it is, for it to accelerate from here, we have to have, we go back to demand and supply. So demand has to exceed supply. And for demand to go up in a meaningful way, we need people to start spending money, right? They need to be confident. They need to be confident about their outlook. Employment needs to be up. You know, wages have to go up. Real wages have to go up. And there has to be a level of confidence in the economy. And that isn't there right now. So that's the first thing. And it's not going to be there for a while. And the second thing is, is that, you know, for all of this QE, a lot of people uh, think that QE will lead to inflation automatically. But if you think about QE, what QE does is the central bank just creates a load of money. And what they do is they buy government bonds. Okay. And when they buy government bonds, uh, the holders of government bonds uh, benefit and they normally banks um, and the government, right? So the government issues debt and the central bank buys debts off them, basically. So that money stays within financial markets or the asset markets. For inflation to happen, that money needs to somehow find its way into the real economy. So into your pocket and into my pocket and for us then to spend it. And, and so I just don't see, A, that money going into the real economy in a big way. And secondly, even if we were to acquire that money, we're not going to go out and spend it on, on new cars and Ferraris and, uh, you know, new iPads or iPhones or whatever. I mean, in a, in a meaningful way, you know, we're more likely to be spending a greater mo- amount of that money if we did acquire it in the first place. So that's why I'm cautious on the prospect of inflation going up meaningfully from here. Really interesting point on, on that that I just want to pick up on, which is obviously people's behaviors i guess um in terms of their sentiment towards wanting to spend money if it did get into their pockets so obviously like japan where they had a where they had the deflation their culture was very different to ours i think we're 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 big spenders uh, and and have been for the last couple of decades in, in the uk whereas japan were big savers but also, you talked about money getting into the pockets. So if it's not getting into the pockets and it's only going into financial assets, would you then say, well, that's good for property so, and other financial assets? And would you be expecting that financial assets would see inflation? And then 
Secondly, do you think some of the stimulus that's going around will actually or is getting into mine and your pockets in terms of things like the, I don't know, bounce back loans, furlough schemes, things like that. So I think there are certain things which are getting into people's pockets straight away. Um, but again, I, I completely get your point on the, um, mm. on the QE. So the first question on, on asset markets, yes, it's a positive for property, absolutely, because there's more liquidity in the financial markets. The banks are in a healthier position and they have a greater ability and willingness to, to make loans, right? Because that's what banks exist for. They make, so, even, they make, so, so even if um, CPI may not uh, officially be going up over the next, say, five, 10 years, you would still expect financial assets to be going up. I think that, yeah, yeah, because there's a, you know, as we, as we talked about earlier, there's a whole load of cash and liquidity sitting around. They don't really, you know, where do people put their money, right? So government bonds are yielding 0.2%. This is, we're talking about the 10 year bond. It's actually five, 0.5, 0.6%, I think. You know, so, so bond yields are next to nothing. Um, equities are relatively attractive, more attractive than they were, you know, six months ago. And property is, is attractive because, you know, whilst you've got that the longer term demand underpinning property, um, and whilst you've got reasonable yields, five, six percent or whatever, you know, people, property will always be attractive. Uh, and so, you know, from the demand point of view, it's attractive from the availability of credit point of view that's also very very supportive so i think um i think property is okay you know as long as as long as those demand conditions are are still there i think in these scenarios you've got to be very careful of comparing things to what they used to be and to the results that they used to give and you've got to be far more focused on comparing different assets to other opportunities at the same time now because the property's had a great run and whether or not we'll see that run happen again is one point. But what, yeah. what I think is how you compare it to other opportunities. Yeah. I mean, and you, you compare against other opportunities, but also you compare against cash because, you know, you got, if you've got cash sitting around in your bank, mm-hmm. let's say you've got a hundred K sitting around and going back to what I said earlier, if you, if you look at the real rate of inflation, which is running more like five, 6% mm-hmm. plus, you know, every year you're effectively losing five or six thousand pounds, which is being eroded from your cash balance. So, you know, in some ways, sitting in cash is the worst thing to do. I mean, right now it's in an environment where you know the property market is is returning to a buyer's market. Cash is king for sure. Do you, um, do you think there might be some short-term deflationary sort of a deflationary environment then? maybe for the next, I don't know, year, possibly two years, where holding cash may be best. Deflationary in terms of CPI and uh, well, RPI, yeah. that sort of thing? Yeah. Or yeah. you're not talking about asset market deflation? And, or? And, well, potentially, yes, as people's disposable, well, certainly CPI, as people's disposable incomes potentially are coming down due to things like furlough schemes, some mm. take wage cuts, um, things like that, because people aren't out there spending. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it's going to be, um, you know, the next six to 12 months is definitely going to be a buyer's market because the market's going to get softer. Um, there'll be more properties out there on, on sale. And if you've got cash, if you've got liquidity, it's going to be 
brilliant. It's going to be, it's going to be a great asset. Um, you know, cash is going to be cash is king, you know, and, and, and especially if you, you know, I said earlier that banks were in a healthy position, but they have reduced their overall lending criteria and their LTVs and all the rest of it. So if they are going to be marginally less willing to lend, especially at those sort of um, more levered levels, especially on, say, sites which are, you know, showing very small profitability ratios. If you've got cash, if you can go in and make quick offers based on your cash, then you're going to be in a much stronger position. So I, I agree. I mean, cash is going to be a great asset from, you know, it's, it's amazing how it's shifted from six months ago, cash was trash. And yeah. now all of a sudden cash is king. So do you think on the loan to value points that that is from a, I guess, credit point of view from the banks, or do you think it's more because they just can't get an accurate answer on valuations? Yeah, I think both. I think, I think both. Yeah. Yeah. That, that whole sort of valuation thing hopefully will be relaxed. Now lockdowns are kind of gradually being relaxed. Um, So we'll get a better site of valuation, but you know, surveyors, when they go in now, you know, they're, they're almost having to sort of make an assessment for, you know, how has the market changed and when transactions are still relatively low, how can you make a how can you take a view on you know what the value of a property is going to be now post covid so it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a bit of a tough one for valuers as well uh, yeah. right now absolutely manage i know i know in the past when we've we've discussed things i know when this started i was a lot more kind of bearish than you and you seem to be kind of uh, coming out on top there so What's something that you believe to be true that maybe other people don't agree with you and why? Are we talking about in investments or anything? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, we kind of, we, we, we looked at it earlier, right? We talked about it earlier, the whole inflation thing. And there's, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding um, about inflation. You, if you look at Japan, I mean, I used to live in Japan and, and I used to invest in Japan when I was working um, for one of the investment banks. And it's a very different culture, but the underlying drivers are very similar. Okay. So when they had their credit bubble burst in uh, 1990, they had huge, um, huge lost decade, as you said, between then and 2000. And then they started QE around the end of that decade, early 2000s. And they were the modern day pioneers of, of QE. And, and so what they found, and I, I take a lot of important lessons from what they found, um, is that, um, you know, for them, deflation was more of an issue than inflation. And they've had 20 years of very, very low inflation, very low interest rates. And this is something that people um, generally don't see and don't really um, believe. You know, they kind of associate QE with mass inflation going forward and people jump on the back of gold and Bitcoin and all, all these other things, which is probably barking up the wrong tree, I would say. So that's one thing. Yeah. I mean, the other thing is, that, um, you know, more on a more general level, I think history, and this is not finance related, so history yeah. will show us that uh, humans, you know, we, we kind of recklessly destroying our own planet, right? So we're kind of ignoring all the warning signals right now. And I think people will see that and that, I think that will happen a lot sooner than people are expecting right now. I think we're kind of being malicious through our own greed. And we're not just talking about kind of rising temperatures, rising sea levels. 
I think we're also talking about potentially an acceleration of viruses and, and things, right? So, you know, it's no coincidence. I was looking at, I was reading something the other day. So we look at Spanish flu, bird flu, swine flu, coronavirus. All of these are linked to kind of abuse of our environment or abuse of wildlife and animals. And, and you know, these viruses seem to be increasing in frequency. So this is something that's not being talked about, but we need to be very, very careful about how we how we treat the planet because we might get a lot more of this stuff going on um, you know in the not too distant future absolutely so last question then from me is what is the kindest thing someone's done for you in business oh I was gonna. I was gonna talk about my mum, <laughs> but uh, but actually, it is business related. So my mum was the kindest person ever, and not just to me, but to anyone. So she persuaded my granddad, who was the second kindest person ever, to give me a deposit for my first house purchase, and they got me onto the housing ladder. So I credit uh, my property journey to to both my mum and my grandfather. Um, so and there's look, there's a load of very kind people in the property industry as well, right? So. You know, you and I are part of a, a sort of a group, a mastermind group, and there's so many helpful people in, in this space who you can sort of ask questions and people will come to you, very experienced people. So I'd put you amongst uh, all the kind people I know, Rod. <laughs> Thank you. Honoured. Oh, fantastic. Well, I've, I've had such a good time talking to you. It's, 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 it's literally been uh, one of my guilty pleasures just discussing sort of the economy and house prices. Likewise, we should do it again sometime. Absolutely. Is there anything else you want the audience to know? Do you want to talk a bit about Invest Like a Pro, which is one of your companies that you, you do investment into, into property-related projects? Uh yeah, no, I just say, um, you know, if people want to find out more, because I, I tend to write a lot about my sort of thoughts around this stuff and due diligence and investment analysis on, on markets and, and property and secured property loans, which I think are really uh, attractive asset class. Mm -hmm. So if you want to find out more about this stuff, just head over to the website, which is investlikeapro.co.uk. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Manish. It's been really, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. We'll definitely have to get you on again soon. Thanks, Rod. Great. Cheers. Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on The Rodcast.